0: you're visiting, my name is Peter, and I serve on the team of elders that leads the church. Last week, I was gone celebrating my father's 70th birthday, and Alberto preached. And it's become somewhat of a, a theme in our church that when, when I'm preaching, I'm just kind of, well, he's not Alberto, but he's okay. And I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I'm okay with that. Because even if I can be compared to this guy right here, I'm I'm in good shape. So he started our new series of birthmarks here, the first two verses of Romans 12. We are not granted by God time and space and air on the earth simply to be normal, simply to conform to the patterns of this world. But neither has God left you here just to try your religious best to not be like everyone else. Rather, the gift at hand that's available to us is being transformed by the renewing of your mind. This means new heavenly thoughts from God and new desires and new vision and passion for your life and new heavenly action. Because as we'll see... In verse 3, we have grace at hand. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's word. Romans 12, we'll read verses 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but In proportion to our faith, if service in serving and to the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Y'all can be seated. Let's pray. Jesus, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word. Lord, forbid that we would just carry on trying to do better and to be better without a heavenly revelation of who you are and whose we are and thus what life is meant to look like when we are being transformed from one image of glory to another. Don't let us settle for less settle for our own opinions. Open our eyes, give us ears, give us eyes for your kingdom. Amen. Church, today we're going to dig a little deeper into Romans 12, 3 through 8. And as the scripture here directs us, I see three different focuses that from start to finish are text is pointing out. Identity, interdependence, and impartation. Three I words. Let's go from start to finish in our passage. We'll just start on the very first verse of our passage, verse three, talking about identity. Identity. Every sinful or evil thing that you do or say or think or have ever done or said or thought comes ultimately from a lie that you believe about who you are. Everything. Now, on the other hand, every redemptive thing that you will ever do hinges off of a revelation of who you really are, whose you are, based on the revelation of who the Redeemer is. Amen? Verse 3. For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think of himself, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the me- measure of faith that God has assigned. Not think more highly of himself, this could be translated to not think too much of himself, to obsess over our view of ourself to the detriment of what god's word says about us. I heard one preacher comment on this passage on this very verse, and he argued that there has never been and will never be a culture on planet Earth where pride is not the ultimate problem driving all the destructive sin patterns in that given culture. Never been any culture. Think about our culture here in America. We love to think, I love to think that the rest of the world sees us. When they think about America, they think, okay, freedom and and values. But when the rest of the world sees us, they see that we serve money. They see greed by and large. And I would argue that money is not our problem. It's pride. Like in every culture. Money isn't what fuels our materialistic idolatry and it's not economic issues that we have that drive us drive us to this crazy frenzy on Black Friday. By the way, we are now before Black Friday and you don't have to go there, okay? You can choose to boycott Crazy, all right? But I don't think it's an economic or a money issue. It's pride. It's me telling myself that there's nothing more important than me feeding my insatiable desire for this thing. And then, of course, when that doesn't satisfy, it's the next thing. And look, the thing is not the problem. It's me. It's pride. Or consider violent cultures in the world today or in history, which in every way, in some way, all cultures are violent like this. Some of us just sanitize the violence in different ways. But violence in culture, is it, is it a violence issue or is it a culture saying our way, our ideas, and our culture is more important than your human rights? It's pride. It's seeing ourselves at the center and seeing everything else that God says about creation as secondary to me. Pride, or or what I'll call Amsterdam culture, which is the uh, sexual revolution culture that seems to be all over us, making us progress somehow, and yet we're so digressing. The you do you of sexuality, where the line of sexual behavior continues to be drawn everywhere, and we're so different, and and we can never kind of nail down what is identity in this area, and we're just so confused, and yet we say we're so free. And we're not free, but I would argue this is not a sexual problem. This is a pride problem. This is the self-exaltation of human pride that exalts human appetites to the place of God instead of what his word has always said about the dignity of our bodies and our appetites. At the root, this is not sexual. This is pride. Pride is the root of every cultural sin pattern in the history of the world. All the confusion and destruction. It's pride. It's thinking too much of myself, thinking too much about the way I myself alone see reality. Our governmental leaders in our nation today, anyone else here? Okay. Get nervous enough to listen, okay? Our governmental leaders are so polarized you know, t- totally competing views about what the nation is, right, and what politics and values are. But I would argue that it's not competing views of the Constitution or the nation or any of that. That's the issue. It's pride. And it's not just pride in one person. You see pride in one person, you're shocked, like, whoa, what, where did that come from? It's the same place that mine does. And you see other people that argue with that person, and yeah, they might have competing political views, but they're fighting arrogance with arrogance. Just their own kind of flavor of smug and pretentious attitudes. Now now that I've been a little bit political, allow me to be a lot a bit personal with you and me. Remember, in a democratic society, our elected leaders are at least a caricature of who we are, who you are, who I am. So if we're going to be shocked about the pride that we see on Twitter from other people, let's at least take that shock to the root of our own pride and bring it to the table and do business with Jesus. Jesus. Let's be shocked at ourselves. Pride is the soup that we're all swimming in. So it's not helpful to look out and examine the world. If we're not willing for the word to look into us and examine us. Verse three, by the grace given to me, I say that everyone should think, should not think of himself as more highly than he ought to think. See how, When the world's issues are drawn out, what's the problem with the world? Christian worldview from the Bible helps us to draw a circle around ourselves and say, God, help me, before we say, God, help us. We need grace to see true identity of who we are and to see the pride, the wrong, over-obsessed view of ourselves that competes with our true identity. See, pride is the center of every cultural issue out there because pride is the center of every sin issue in me. Listen to what Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis, says in Mere Christianity about pride. He said, there is one vice or sin Vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes or hates when he sees in someone else, and of which hardly any people except maybe Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I've ever heard anyone, though, who was not a Christian, accuse himself of this Vice, And at the same time, very seldom have I met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it, this vice, in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it, this vice, ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice that I am talking about is pride or self-conceit. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil, and pride leads to every other vice. So knowing this, how beautiful is it that the redemption pages in the Bible... And it's specifically here in chapter 12. It commands us in verses 1 through 2, be transformed. do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it doesn't just leave us to kind of figure out how to do all that. We see by verses 6 and 8 this transformation, this renewed identity, this renewed mind. He's giving us the body of Christ to help build ourselves up in the prophetic gift of God to underline and echo what the Word says about us in very real and powerful ways to build each other up in our new identity. But in between that, Paul's clearing the deck. Because to make space for what God says about you and to grow in that understanding with prophetic ears we need to regularly and fundamentally deal with pride. I want to go one more step with pride. Pride, in my opinion, is also at the center of insecurity, self-loathing, self-condemnation, timidity, and a general low view of self. So when Paul says, let no one think too highly of yourself, I think in one sense, he's also saying, don't be so consumed with your own view of yourself, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by what God says about you and not what you say about who you are or who you're not. So I I think when you're obsessed with beating yourself down, that's in essence pride as well. See, it's easy to see pride in... in, in The person that says, well, I can do anything I want. I'm the master of my own ship or whatever. The captain of my own soul. It's easy to see pride and hyper self-confidence. What about in hyper self-hatred? I'm arguing that pride is there too. It's at the, the root of it. See, humility is the opposite of pride. And humility is not a low view of yourself. I've heard someone say, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Because sometimes you can think too much about yourself, too much about your own flaws and blemishes, and too little little about the grace of God in you and what God says about you, and what, despite your weaknesses, how his strength is manifesting uniquely through you. We were just too obsessed with our flaws to allow the greatness of God in our particularities to be shown. It's pride. But when there's something bigger that captivates your perspective, something that you can gaze upon, it will refocus your view on self and on the church, and on the world. When there's someone that's greater from whom you derive your renewed identity, you'll see yourself in light of them. You'll see, have an accurate view of your new self. Do not think, let no one think of himself more highly than he ought to think, and and at least in one sense, I think, more, more obsessed with your view of your own self, but to be transformed in the renewing of your mind is to think with sober judgment, as it says here, according to the measure of faith. What's faith? There's substance from the word of God. Where do we get that? The end of verse three says, God has assigned. God has assigned the right view of our own identity. So think of it this way. If, if pride is the root of all that's kind of off in the world, in essence, in this light, pride assigns all the other vices and sins, then you need to know that God, the redeemer, is at the root of all that can and will be redeemed and restored and re-identified for blessing. God is. So pride assigns destructive behavior to your life, but grace in God assigns new life to everything. Jesus was sent by God on assignment. And he came and he lived a perfect life. Only someone that's born of a virgin and and conceived of the Holy Spirit has any shot at doing this. And Jesus lived a perfect life. And so his assignment, the wages of his life, was eternal life. But for the joy set before him, he traded his consequence for ours. He took our assignment when he went to the cross of Calvary, he died the death that our pride and our destruction assigned to us to take our wage. And then on the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead. One scandal is that three women saw him first. And in patriarchal society, you wouldn't admit that three women were the first eyewitness testimonies to the resurrected Christ unless three women were the first testi- t- testifiers and witnesses to the resurrection of Christ because Jesus rose from the dead, and he's still not dead. He's alive. He, he appeared to 500 individuals in a 40-day period, none of which were willing to recant that they saw Jesus alive, most of which were willing to die for it. The clearest explanation is because they saw Jesus die, and they saw that he was very much verifiably not dead. And so they said, well, you can kill me, but, you know, I've got some evidence here that killing is kind of like a temporary situation when I'm in him. The same light that filled the tomb of Jesus when he got up And got alive again. I pray that it fills your view of who He is and what He says about you and what He says about others who are also flawed like you but connected to you. So, back to humility. It isn't a low view of self, it's an accurate view of self. According to, as the start of verse 3 says, grace. By grace in me I say, we can see ourselves correctly. Because at the end of verse three, faith that God has assigned. Or I love how Pastor Randy Winthrop puts it. In Sundown, Texas, he says, Grace doesn't simply enable us to behave differently, grace empowers us to see ourselves the way God sees us. You must know that you must know who you are in order to change what you do. Isn't that beautiful? See, pride prevents you from perceiving and receiving your true identity. Closes your ears to receiving also the prophetic impartation and encouragement from others that you need. But grace leads to humility, an accurate view of yourself. And grace empowers a type of living that's appropriate with who you really are. It's not just you're trying a little better. You got your life right. You're you're really sincere now. No, it's grace from God to know who you really are and to live accordingly. And and stay with me here because this new mind, which produces new behavior, God's not just leaving you to be like, okay, I really hope you're listening in church now. Because if if you get it, you're going to be different. He doesn't just leave us with that. He gives us one another to remind ourselves of who we really are, to to see the blind spots that we can't see in one another, to pick things off of one another, even when it hurts our feelings, that we need picked off of us so that we can build up unto that which we really are. You're not alone to grow in the responsibility of seeing your new identity play out in renewed behavior. Number two, interdependence. See, seeing... Having a renewed mind, and it's what the Bible calls repentance in our mind that plays out in our actions. He doesn't just leave us to ourselves to play it out. It's a team sport. It's interdependent. Notice how verse 3 goes to verse 4. See, I went to college so I can count from 3 to 4. In essence, an accurate view of yourself comes from knowing the grace of your Redeemer, verse 3, but also your place in the family, verse 4. Or in the body. So verse 4 says, verse 4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. Thank God, there's not everyone's like me. Almost too much of me already, right? We don't all have the same function. Verse 5. So we, though many, are, here's more identity words, we are one body in Christ. And individually members of one another. You see, I didn't quite understand this in my 20s as well as I do now about how important everyone is. See, in my 20s, I was prideful, right? But in my 30s, I'm over that now. If you don't know that I'm being facetious, maybe it's because you're still in your 20s. I don't know. But I I could probably have beat you in pride, and it's not something that I'm just going to be happy about, right? Like, it's not super exciting, to think back on some of the things I said to people. But I really had this thought, especially as it it relates to spiritual gifts. Every time I'd go to a new church and a new place, I'd have this kind of underlying thought, you know what this church needs? More of me. (laughs) You know what everything needs here? Just me saying stuff. I, I would think like this. Now, I wouldn't admit it, because I was so humble, and I prided myself on that. But I thought like this. Over the years, I've begun to see through so much pain (laughs) and seeing how I I was wrong. Turns out we need a lot more than just me. I've seen God's power work so uniquely through other people with other spiritual gifts, If it weren't for the administrator, I would be dead. Let's everyone give Alyssa a hand. You can embarrass her now. You can embarrass her later. I need the rest of the body of Christ. I need the word of God and all the promises that will not allow me to remain as I am. And it's really cool, too, to see this this week we had students on campus rise up with their own gifts, but with a renewed passion that comes from getting together. We really saw Romans 12 here come to life where we encourage one another and it stirs up this thing where everyone in their own way is, is expressing Holy Spirit boldness. I mean, honestly, I see the, the word of God proclaimed at the start of this service through Jessica and it's like, wow, yes. Same message, different tone and different gift and it hits home in a unique way. I see Tessa on campus preach, and she preaches the same word of God, but man, she gets away with stuff that I couldn't get away with, right? She she can say bold and true, harsh realities, but with her sweet spirit, I call her the silent assassin, right? Because it's so sweet, but devils tremble, and I couldn't say it like that with my bravado, but God has apportioned different unique gifts. When we're united as one with one message, one redeemer, one Christ we proclaim. And look, we need each other. I want to explain what interdependence is. The whole seeing ourselves as one body by contrasting interdependence with two lies. Independence and codependence. Independence is isolating and suffocating. It's cutting me off from the other parts of the body, whether it's because I think that, I, that you don't need me or I think that I don't need you. See, see again how this relates to pride? I think you don't need me because it's a low view of myself. It's not humility. Humility says even what I think might be weak is important in the body of Christ. I know who I am and I know that you need me. And therefore my schedule with growth groups, with church will be indicative of that understanding that I know you need me. I don't have a low view of self. I have an accurate view of self. And, and I don't ever think too, if with, with God's true identity flowing through me, I don't ever think that you don't, that I don't need you. I don't have a, an, a bloated view of myself that causes me to be stingy with giving you generously what God's given to me to give to you. When we see through God's eyes, we can see interdependently and not isolate ourselves and cut others off from the rest of the body. That's independence. It robs the body of who we are. Now, codependence in life is the opposite of building others up like Paul describes every time he describes the spiritual gifts here or elsewhere. Codependence is when we push each other down. Like drug addicts that are codependent and use each other to get a fix and to stay down or stay locked into addiction. Christians can often behave like this with spiritual addictions, like negativity and bitterness and unforgiveness We can kind of, instead of building each other up, we can be like, oh, she said that to you too? Yeah, me too. Oh, let's talk about it. And your response should be, let's talk with her about it. Let's build each other up, not be codependently dragging each other down. See, if you're into mathematics, I'm going to try to put it this way. Independence is my strength and my weakness plus nothing, which ends up equaling weakness. Because our weakness will always, always outrun our strength without Christ. And codependence is your weakness plus my weakness equals a whole lot more multiplied weakness. But interdependence is my strength and weakness united with your strength and weakness plus the blood of Christ, which cancels our weakness and equals a combined strength through grace. So when we're looking at one another as connected like we really are, then we can see that love co- covers a multitude of sins. And, and your misbehavior or bad attitude is not the final word. I can apply the, the blood of Christ to something in you that bothers me, and I can go and what the Bible calls confronting you with sin and say, hey, this hurts my feelings, and we can talk about it and we can pray about it. And all of a sudden, our weakness when combined equals God's strength because we need each other. We belong to one another. You have no right to see yourself as disconnected from other individuals if you've been connected to Jesus through faith. We're united in him, and yet we still have our unique parts, but we belong to one another. And that's why, we, again, we go to growth groups not just because, oh, I like this, but because I need this. I need to confess my sin and pray for one another that we might be healed or strengthened. And I also go to growth groups because I want to give. Everyone has something to give. And I love how interdependence that I see Paul explaining the, the body comes after pride. And before showing us how we need to use our gifts to build each other up. Because when we see who we really are, we'll see to whom we belong and who we're connected with. And that's also the portal through which God builds us up. He uses other people to build us up into who we truly are. And I see this manifest in two different ways. We see it happen, kind of the true identity thing. A turning point for that is we really see that happening in our church in Victory Weekend. And then launching off from there to like obeying verses 6 through 8, which we're going to talk about in a second. We see that happening in Equip 101 where you're able to discover your gifts in unique ways. Now I'll talk about that in a second. But Victory Weekend is such a beautiful thing. Because rarely in your life, if not ever, will you have an eight-hour period where you're focused on what God's word says about who he is and who you are and have help from the rest of the body of Christ, gifted people, to unearth every competing message about who you are that's been leading to all of your behaviors and habits for years and years anyway. Maybe you've tried to change, but maybe God's word through other people is what you need. It's not, it's not necessarily something new in Victory Weekend. It's just the intentionality of faith that says we need each other to unearth our real identity. So if you haven't signed up for Victory Weekend, and you need to, I give you permission to get your phones out and go to thespringstx.org, okay? Now, pride skews our view of our own identity, but grace gives us ability to see who we really are and to the body of of Christ that we belong to, but, but also grace is mentioned here in verse six, showing us how we can activate the gifts that God's given us to not just try our best to avoid the sin of the world, but to conquer sin, and conquer the enemy by thriving in victory through the spiritual gifts being activated through us in impartation, bringing life, imparting life to others. Now, if you've been through Victory Weekend, but not Equip 101, which is our next step, I encourage you to sign up for January. One of our elders, Thaddeus, is masterful in explaining how he's seen his spiritual gifts come alive at his work and seeing how we can all do our job and play our part when we're together. Again, sign up for that. But either way, check in to seeing the last few verses. Verses six through eight say this. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us Use them. Turn to your neighbor and say, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to your faith, if service in our serving to the one who teaches in teaching, who exhorts in exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The first thing mentioned here is prophecy. Prophecy. This is the only gift mentioned all four times that the spiritual gifts are listed in the New Testament. And most often, this is the, the gift most emphasized by Paul. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12-14, three times we're commanded to earnestly desire the higher gifts, especially that we would prophesy. Why is that? Yeah, I, I think when we stigmatize prophecy as if prophecy was like some sort of magical mind reading or future telling, and that's all it is, then yeah, it would be hard to see why we're all commanded to like receive more of this spiritual gift. But when we see that the purpose of prophecy is really just a supernatural way of building other believers up, we're really going to see first and foremost that that's the heart of every spiritual gift. And number two, we have access to the voice of the Holy Spirit in this spiritual gift in verse 6, it says the word prophecy. It's a Greek word that means a discourse emanating from divine inspiration, declaring the purposes of God, admonishing, comforting, revealing, hitting things, or forth So do you do any of those things by the power of the Holy Spirit, even when you don't know you're doing it? Yes. I would argue that when in faith you tell your friend Jesus loves you, you might just be prophesying. Especially when the Holy Spirit gives you specific insight to go deeper and more specific with that love. Now, one could say, well, you know, the word of God already builds us up in his word. And I would say, yes, the word is sufficient and complete. But God still speaks. Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, we know in part and we prophesy in part. God's word is not partial, but my understanding of it is partial. And my proclamation of it is partial. And that part grows as I impart through the Spirit's gifts to build others up. And I build them up into the perfect whole of fullness in Christ. And as I'm building others up, it just so happens that my self-obsessions burn away. My worries about finances or whatever else I could worry about doesn't seem to have space to dictate the course of my life as much. Amen? Does anyone else relate to this or is it just me? Jeez. See, the Spirit speaks to confirm what the Word has already spoken. The, the Spirit does not compete with the Word. Sometimes my kids will ask for something, right? They'll go to their mom and they'll ask for something. And when they don't get the answer they like, what do they do? They come to dad. (laughs) And sometimes I fumble and don't realize, oh, there's a trick here. They've already asked their mom. But when I do see it, I always underline, listen, son, most often son. Listen, son, your mother and I are one. We have the same answer. We're one. And church, I'm here to tell you, that the Word and the Spirit are one. The Spirit will always declare and echo what the Word has already said. That's why it commands us, the Word commands us to examine every prophetic word according to the Word of God. Examine things. And we grow in that part as we become more whole in Christ. Now, why does God... Why has he decided that he wants to echo through the spiritual gifts what he's already said in the word? It's a good question. Why is it that my wife and kids need to be reminded what I've already promised? I mean, I wrote on my son's birthday card four years ago, I love you. Right? It is written. It is written. But it turns out that human beings, and God knows it because it turns out he made us, we have a need to be affirmed and reminded and built up. And I take my kids aside and I say, you're strong. You're mighty. You're loved. You're valuable. Your body is a gift from God. I love you. And listen, you are no different categorically than my seven-year-old son. And neither am I. We need God's affirmation. And more specifically, this church needs the Holy Spirit in you to impart life to others in a way that he's designed only you to impart it. And after a careful study of Scripture, I think think when it says in verse 6, let us use them, I think it means... Let us use them. Wait, what if it's flawed? What if it's not like perfect and stuff? God's word is perfect, and I don't have to be, because I'm secured under my trust of God's word. And I'm convinced after a few decades of following Jesus and uh, careful study of scripture, the best that I understand, I'm convinced more and more today, that learning to grow in the impartation of the spiritual gifts and to use supernatural power, which is way more exciting than sin, by the way, to grow in Jesus is not that different than grow in speaking a new language. Sometimes I've had had people ask me like, how do you, how'd you learn Spanish so much? And I always say, I had so much experience saying things stupid in English that I wasn't as self-conscious to use what I had in Spanish and so I grew. And I say to you as well, usa lo que tienes y va a crecer. Use what you have and it'll grow. You might say, "Oh, I don't speak Spanish." Does everyone know what hola means? Say that back to me. Hola. You speak Spanish now. Do you know every verse in the Bible? No. But my four-year-old daughter knows that Jesus saves sinners. And so my ears are open to prophetic utterance from her, just like from you. My question to you is, is are you using what God gives you? Because if you use what you have, you'll grow in it. I, I was so amazed this week. We should always be amazed and never surprised at God moving. To see students rise up and use the gift that God had given them. We had friends from every nation around the, the country kind of fly in and help, help us to, to preach that Jesus saves sinners and to prophesy on the campus. And they left after Tuesday. And then what happened on Wednesday and Thursday is that our students preached with a double portion of power that all the professionals that had come in, it was, it was a step above. Students interrupting their classes and inviting people to follow Jesus and to come to meetings and things like that. Students prophesying over other people. We had one story of a young student who, who saw people prophesying over other people and thinking things like, I don't, I don't know if that's real or whatever. And then later, he got spoken over, like amazed that God knows stuff about him and, and it should always be amazing to all of us. When God speaks to you and tells you who you really are and reminds you how loved you specifically really are, it's a game changer. I remember coming to know Jesus, and I was so amazed by Jesus and wasn't quite understanding. This is a whole new thing happening to me. I was a new creature, and I was still yet a, little bit in, a lot of bit insecure of my old identity, and I thought that I was on earth to try to be a cool kid in high school and things like that. And I was in the, uh, the, the commons in our high school, which is kind of like the, the place where the cool kids hang out. And one of my autistic friends from the Bible study, I, I was two weeks old in, in my Jesus walk, right? He comes up to me, this autistic kid, and he comes to me, it's like he didn't understand that he's not supposed to come into my cool kid space. And my first thought when he got near me was, Caleb, you're not supposed to be here. I feel awkward. And he says to me, Peter, I know that you might feel like I'm not supposed to be here and you might feel awkward, but I want you to know that Jesus loves you. I'm like, oh, that's, shoot, man, that's great. Thanks, man. Appreciate you. And then he proceeded to tell me things about God's love that I had been wrestling with the night before. God wants to use your gift, just like Caleb's gift, Caleb chose to be bold in that moment. It was my first experience with what the Bible calls prophesying. and I want to be so sanctifyingly addicted to the voice of God that I can grow up and my words sound so much more like the word and the Father's words so that we as a body come to look more like Christ's body. As I was praying for you this week, this is how I planned. This is how I really feel led to, have, to close. I'm convinced that we don't value often the body of Christ the way we should because we do have a lot, a lot of self-loathing of our own place in the body of our own souls that God is redeeming and bodies that God will redeem. And we don't see his body rightly, and sometimes the block is we don't see our body rightly. And I'm, I want to remind you of something really, really simple, but you need to hear it. Jesus is coming back in bodily form. And he's going to have holes in his hands or carpal ligaments and in his side. He's going to be full of life forever and ever and ever. His body, which has blood and bone and fat and muscle, like yours, is going to come back. And at some point, he's going to approach you. And he's going to touch you. And he's going to think and feel things about your body that currently you are not in agreement with. And today, whether it's whether you're looking down on your spiritual gift or you're looking down on your physical body, today God has granted the gift of repentance. To say, Body, I bless you in Jesus' name. Body, I bless you in Jesus' name. Person, I bless you in Jesus' name. Be not downcast, oh, my soul. Would you stand to your feet with me?